You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Nils Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to uh, learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to some of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Moritz, where we discussed the benefits of system diversification, a topic that we may return to today to get Jerry's view. Anyways, Jerry, always fantastic to be with you. How are you doing this week? What's going on? Doing well, Niels. Thank you for having me, and it's fun to be here. I listen to the podcast with your other guest. As soon as they come out, I'm often very impatient. And then I've started listening to them more than once and watching on YouTube so I get the transcript. So I'm really paying a lot of attention to what you say on a weekly basis. So That's very kind. Keep going. We will, with your help, of course. Now, at this point, I would normally give a shout-out to those of you who left a rating and review and show uh, my appreciation, our appreciation, as it really does help the show. But this week... I have to share that we also got a pretty bad review from someone called Lower Lows. So I think he must be a trend follower since he's used the words Lower Lows from France. And he or she was not happy with Moritz and my interview with Jack Swager. And he did not think we let Jack speak enough. But, you know, as Ted Lasso would say, that's okay. We don't need to all agree. And in any event, thanks for letting us know, Lower Lows, and I hope, of course, that you at least enjoyed the other 400-plus episodes that has been released so far. And for those of you who want to help offset this negative rating, we would, of course, appreciate if you would jump into iTunes and leave a few rating and reviews. In terms of a quick summary of the week, due to the various holidays at the beginning of the week, it was kind of expected to be a quiet one, but instead... Corporations issued paper at a breathtaking pace. For the week, uh, there was 52 borrowers who sold in excess of $76 billion in paper. Surprisingly, the large supply barely moved the interest rates as the 10-year Treasury note was less than four basis points higher for the week. The S&P 500 traded lower each successive day this week as forecasts for slowing economic growth dominated the headlines but point to point, the index was down approximately 1.5%, which is hardly a correction. Given all that's going on, it's fair to consider the chance of the Fed tapering purchases this month as a solid maybe. But the upcoming September 21st, 22nd FOMC meeting may serve as a platform for a formal announcement of their plan with the current plan calling for a full wind-down of the quantitative easing regime by the middle of next year. Now, COVID-19 continues to weigh on the economic activity and workers continue to be incentivized to stay off the job. But the producer price index released on Friday is likely to shake the FOMC's confidence that inflation really is transitory. PPI final demand increased 8.3% over the last year's index value 
On top of the Fed's likely discomfort is the calls from influential voices advising President Biden not to renominate the chairman. So it sounds like we could get a busy end to this year in the financial markets. But perhaps the biggest news of the week was that the S&P 500 did not make a new all-time high. And in fact, there wasn't a single day in the uh, S&P 500 during the week where it was up, which is rather rare by historical comparison and uh, has only happened 14 times out of 911 trading weeks since 2004. But as mentioned, the move down was pretty small and not really a correction. Let's talk about what stood out for you, Jerry, since uh, last time we spoke. Anything sort of performance-wise, market-wise, news-wise from a big picture point of view? Uh, yeah, big picture, grains are hanging in there. One short, soybean meal, but everything else, I'm pretty long on the grains still. Kind of funny how the dollar turned around and we... We have uh, a lot of longs and a lot of shorts, and it's like 50-50. So some of the European currencies are weak, although they rallied a bit this week. And then the emerging market, Mexico, Russia, Brazil, South Africa, stronger. So that's interesting to me. But I think the big mover this week, or especially yesterday, it's uh, new highs, I think, in most of the LME, the base metals, copper, aluminum, zinc, nickel, lead, uh, 10, is, 10 has been the biggest mover and the biggest sell-off, but man, I think aluminum, I was reading some headlines, I think aluminum, alum, there's fundamentals out there that uh, aluminum is should stay strong, and it's kind of major resumption of those uptrends that I think started a, a long time ago, a year ago, but uh, that sector of my portfolio has done very well. I'm really happy with my coffee position. I've got London coffee and I've got U.S. coffee, and London's been stronger. I think it made new highs this week. So yeah, it's been. Uh, oh, uh, oh yeah, I wanted to mention cocoa. There is, we had some tweets going back and forth with our friends, friends of the podcast on Twitter, talking about cocoa with twenty losses in a row. And uh, I mentioned that I was long. I think London cocoa and short U.S. cocoa at the same time. So. It's just how, you know, my system can get triggered, barely get triggered sometimes that would, and I think I'm going to probably end up losing money on both of those trades. So that was the punchline, you know? Yeah. Not only has there been like 20 losses in a row in Coco, but I've figured out a way to even have more since I trade both, but you know, I'm hopeful for Coco. It's, it's building this base and it's been frustrating a lot of false breakouts, and that's when my system kind of says, yeah, let's, let's really take this market seriously. But then after 20, you know, after 20 losses in a row, I will be hesitant to do another one, but the system and the computer is not. So I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but I'm sticking with Cocoa. I mean, it's a great point, and it's a great discussion. Uh, you know, I have exactly the same experience with cocoa it's just one of the most frustrating markets uh, and has been for such a long time and it's it's kind of getting to to this point where you say should i really continue to trade this because it never seems to make money and i think so a lot of people i think will have these uh, will look through the portfolio and and have these uh, observations with some markets and of course as you say well you know we just keep at it and it's just one market out of 100 or 50 or however however many markets we trade and I think that's that's absolutely the right approach, but but I fully understand and appreciate the frustration. By the way, speaking of coffee, as you as you rightly noticed, 
European coffee is always stronger than U.S. coffee. I mean, U.S. coffee doesn't taste of anything, right? I, li I like that. I like that. That's good. Exactly. But interesting stuff going on in the metals. I completely agree. I mean, base metals are much stronger than, uh, than precious metals at the moment. I mean, on our side, it was a down week. This week, there was some pressure in the uh, in the stock sector, in the, in particular with, with as mentioned, the U.S. stock market for the first time, um, you know, losing money um, on the week. But interestingly enough, Nikkei did pretty well and topic. So the Japanese stocks are doing something completely different at the moment, but not enough to really offset uh, all the other stock markets. Grains and soft also struggled on our side. Even though the other sectors were marginally positive, there was just not enough in it to offset that kind of negative breeze we saw, uh, in particular in equities. Volatility-wise, it's interesting. Realized volatility continues to really tumble, and it did so this week. And you now have a five-day equally weighted measure in its ninth percentile, and it's standing at 4.1% annualized volatility, which is almost back to the levels we saw in 2017, which is on record, the lowest vol year at the, the yeah, on record. So anyways, interesting, I would say, what was also interesting is that the VIX index did not react uh, in the same manner. In fact, it increased for the week, uh, even though realized volatility was lower, and it went up by four points to about 20, so not a small increase. So a couple of interesting things happening in that area. On our side, our vol program lost a little bit of money, about 60 basis points. I will say that in October, I think I'll come out with a little mini-series on volatility. So stay tuned to uh, that. In terms of my own trend-following portfolio and model, where I can be more detailed, of course, it was down 2.2% for the uh, or it is down 2.2% for the month. It's up 7.08% for the year. Performance so far this month, all three groups are down. Group one, about a percent. Group two, about half a percent. And group three, about three quarters of a percent. So far, in terms of sectors, base metals, as we talked about, and energy is, uh, are doing well. And the worst sectors so far are equities, bonds, and short-term interest rates. And as we also talked about, single markets for the month so far, aluminum doing the best, net gas following that. And then uh, it's followed by the Nikkei. And at the bottom, we find the DAX, the Swiss market index, and Australian. So definitely an equity theme to that. And in terms of the trading, uh, the system started the week uh, getting out of some Euribor and some live cattle and getting into uh, some long Nikkei uh, positions. And then on Wednesday, it got stopped out of a lot of uh, DAX positions for the shorter term uh, models. And then Thursday, it took a little bit of profit in Swiss market index, as well as in a short German Bund position. And it finished the week buying a little bit of Mexican peso, some zinc, and getting out of a little bit of wheat. And actually going short, palladium. Yeah, palladium was pretty weak this week. Anyways, your beloved risk to stop level, Jerry, uh, is down to 8.13%, down from 10.16%. You know, I was thinking about that... Uh when I was listening to the last week's podcast, that uh, that thing can get large the more money you make. Yeah. So it's not a bad sign, kind of. It's it's really interesting. Yeah. Open profits, clearly, because the stops obviously don't move up in a linear way, right? So, so open profits will definitely cause it to look more risky, but you're absolutely right. 
And in a sense, it's a little bit like what you're talking about when you talk about your closed equity and your open equity, right? We need to allow a little bit more risk when when there's strong profit. So yeah, I agree with that. It reminded me of uh, another position I have on, which is uh, the natural gas. And mm -hmm. I trade the US and the UK. Mm -hmm. And like uh, Moritz and you were talking about last week, the UK it has its own fundamentals with Russia and Europe and whatever going on, of course. And so uh, that the UK has been much stronger and much crazier yeah. than the US natural gas, which uh, is in an uptrend for the first time to this degree in a long, long time. But that's interesting as well. And it reminds me of, you know, Richard, we were having a discussion on Clubhouse a few weeks ago, and he was, you know, his explanations are so amazingly in-depth, and he uses words to say the same thing I've been saying or I've been trying to say that I haven't heard before, and it's just like a poet. I really enjoy listening to him, but once he gave this explanation, I was like, whoa, 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 stop, stop. What you're saying basically is that we see correlations a lot, like natural gas or coffee, but they can break down so we shouldn't pay attention to them because we'll miss an outlier if we say UK gas equals US gas. UK coffee equals US coffee. And he goes, yes, that's right, okay, all right. So for, I need to interpret some of these things for more simple minds like mine sometimes. And, uh, and that's what we're sort of seeing, you know, how you will miss a big trend in uh, some of these markets if you, and this is something that I missed. And I know I've been on the show before and said, well, you know, don't worry about it. Um, all the energies are the same, even though I had also said I made 30% in heating oil one exactly, year. Yeah. So yeah. it is kind of a real, we don't want to be too risky. We don't want to ignore correlations in, in uh, highly correlated sectors and groups. And yet we can't see these outliers in these trades and some of the, what seemingly are correlated markets look a lot different than uh, their, their market they're supposed to be correlated with. Yeah, I agree. Um, there seems to be a little bit, of, I mean, first of all, there are more markets we can trade now. I'm sure that um, 10, 20 years ago, there wasn't an, a UK net, net gas contract. I mean, I'm speculating here, I don't know it for sure, but it's not something that's been on my radar until recently. And the same with some of the other European markets that are now uh, tradable that uh, we would otherwise trade in the US. So there seems to be a bit of a decoupling and actually, it's great for us because it gives us even more diversification opportunities, even within the same, same seemingly same markets. So I guess we should just uh, embrace it. And this is just another reminder that, um, you know, as you said, you can have these outliers suddenly occur and, and our job is to try and capture them. And I also think, I think some of this is what we're seeing actually in the returns between, uh, again, seemingly similar trend followers. That's a big return dispersion among managers uh, in the last 12, 18 months. And uh, I really think it's the ones who have embraced some of these newer contracts or newer markets that have really benefited. That's what it looks like to me. So That's right. I mean, you know, when I first got in the business, it, my takeaways from the Turtle program were, you know, hit those breakouts, don't stop and diversify like crazy and and it's like you've said a few times since the COVID outbreak of last year that that's what's been rewarded just close your eyes hit the breakouts and trade as many markets as possible and that strategy has, is having its day it won't always but it seems to be working pretty well now yeah and there seems to be not not that much downside really to 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 change kind of the way we allocate risk to include all of these markets we could still have the same quote-unquote risk to the sector and just say, okay, if there's two natural gas, I'll trade them a little bit smaller. I don't think that 
that's a bad thing. So, um, so yeah, interesting stuff. I wanted, before we dive into the question, there's a question from Sebastian that came in this week, but I just want to stay, you mentioned Richard and he and I, and actually also Morris and I were answering a question from Derek and we, which was regarding back tests. I think things we look at, but also kind of processes we use in order to do back tests. And uh, I also wanted to um, let you weigh in a little bit, uh, maybe not spend too much time on it, but big picture wise in terms of how how you and your, your team does back tests in, in general, you know, how far do you go back? Do you focus, uh, do you put more weight on, on more recent data, not recent data, sort of give a little bit of a, of an insight to how you, um, perform the back test or the process of all for doing a back test and maybe some of your which i know you've said before but some of your the, the key things you then would take from it yeah i mean i think you should use all the data and uh i'm happy being in the minority on that that's fine and don't overweight recent data i kind of think i understand how richard and dunn might update their slowly slowly make minor adjustments to the parameters. I like that idea. I think if I understand it correctly, it makes perfect sense to me. I've tried to explain it back to Richard and say, you know, if I, if I understand you correctly, I, I would have no problem doing the same thing, uh, adding data and slowly seeing if the markets need to be, if I need to be longer term or shorter term. That sounds good to me. But um, I just try to look at, you know, I've said this before, like, like I like to look at charts and see what's going to keep me in the big trends, you know, what sort of parameter. I don't want to be too short term and get bounced out of the big trends. And I don't want to stay too long and give back too much profit. And then when I get in my head, uh, well, this looks like what should work to hunt those outliers and stay in those outliers that last a year or two or three. And then I do the back test on those parameters and the back test says, yes, those are good parameters. And so that's kind of how I do it. I don't want to optimize and I don't want to be fooled by what my eyes are seeing. So I want to do the back test, but I want to start with what I, with the philosophy. And I just love this idea that you brought up and that I think I'd heard before a few weeks ago, loose pants. I'm like, yes, loose pants. And I just think when you look at some of these charts and these markets, especially recently, the feedback that I get from the research and from my observations is it's very hard for you humans to be too long-term. I mean, because I swear, some of these trends that we have seen, they have had massive sell-offs that were very uncomfortable and yet go right back up, right back to the highs. And then the profit is just gigantic. And I just was thinking that it's almost impossible. I don't know of anyone who can do that. I don't know. I don't care almost what the research says. The back test can tell you if you still have your full Moderna position, you're going to have one hell of a trade and you're going to be making so much more money this year than anyone else. It's just not Moderna. It's Bitcoin, Tesla. And in order to, in what you have, in, in the disappointment of lumber, it's, I was thinking the other day, you know, lumber is just a bad looking trade for me because I gave back way too much profit, quote unquote, right? But I followed my system. But in order, since I'm treating all markets the same, I had to sacrifice lumber mm. in order to stick with Tesla and Moderna. And you're like, oh yeah, you see, how do I make all three of those trades look great? I don't think you can. You can make the most amount of money 
on all three as a group if you have a long-term approach. But I think that getting into your backtesting and saying to yourself constantly, loose pants, loose pants, <laughs> have these parameters that a lot of crazy price action can fit under and keep you in it is so important. And you can't pay too much attention to drawdown then or maximizing the profit or volatility because that's not loose pants. Uh, you're being too precise and um, adapting. I'm, a, I'm an anti-adapter and a, of uh, new price patterns because I want to see price. I'm going to be ready for price patterns I've never seen before, which it could in the future, some, some trade in the future might need even looser pants and look way worse than Moderna. So it, I'm getting excited about research because I think the research is good and I agree with what everybody says about it, except we have to be prepared for crazy volatile markets in order to maximize our profitability. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the way you uh, phrased that. Of course, the quote was not mine. It really was from Perry Kaufman. I think it's in one of his books, but it is a fantastic quote. And I do see definitely signs that when we talked about before the return dispersion, I do see signs certainly that some of the managers that I know well, uh, who are doing really well in the last uh, 12, 18 months, and, and, and congratulations on that, I think it is the ones that, as you say, can absorb the volatility, don't worry too much about the drawdown and will, you know, benefit over time with, without a doubt. So, um, yeah, completely uh, agree with that. And embedded in the let profits run, take small losses and let profits run. I mean, it's fine to reject that and that's fine. And even as a trend follower, you could reject that whole notion. That's fine as well or parts of it or to a large degree. Or that's old school caveman and it's not much evolving going on there. That's all fine. But you have to admit that in that one little cliche, take small losses and let your profits run, is it's impossible to for me to understand how that could possibly be the case unless you are planning to treat open profits different from losing trades. And so right then and there, we're going to take these 25 basis point losses, but the volatility in order to let the profits run, there's a distinction right there between losing trades, not perf not percentage performance and not daily performance or weekly or monthly. No, no, no. It's the D trade. Let that tr profit in that trade run. And that right there to me says, I have no care really to volatility. If you're going to follow your system and follow the exit and the trailing stop, you have to wait for it to get hit. And that could be very uncomfortable and painful. And so there's two different types of drawdown. But drawdown from a peak profit in Moderna, Tesla, Bitcoin, lumber, that's different than a small yeah. loss. Yeah, very true, very true. I wanted to actually also pick your brain on, on, on a topic that also Derek brought up because I'm sure he would love to hear your view on that as well. Moritz and I gave our thoughts last week and and that's this question about what we would do if we had to start a CTA firm today and not 20 or 30 years ago. How would we go about it? Probably the last thing on your mind, really, but I'd, don't, I would still love to uh, see if we can give Derek a, a few thoughts on that, how you might want to, what you think are the challenges today for new managers um, and how that how you may think they could overcome it because as as i mentioned last week 
I think the barriers to entry in our industry today is higher than they've ever been for various reasons. So do you have any thoughts on if you had to start all over, what you would do? I believe I saw that tweet and I think we talked about it on Clubhouse, but then I listened to you and Moritz and I was like, oh yeah, you guys are really, I really had forgotten about one big issue that Moritz brought up, which I think is man, it is paramount and that is positive cash flow. That is sort of the most important thing. And that's, and that's my mentality in 1988 when I started Chesapeake and I had tremendous positive cash flow and a few clients and the way he explained, you know, his, uh, starting of his CTA firm that I was really thinking back to those days and thankful that I had, um, not gotten into, uh, trouble in some of those areas, but mm. I just can't help but think too, that it's, it's two different questions. One is if you want to be a successful, if you want your performance to be good and, or if you want to have a successful trading firm with assets under management, that's like two different things. And I, I think I have no clue how to do the latter because it's so hard now. When I started, people were throwing money at us and some of the deals and some of the funds we were trading were sort of dubious for, from a client perspective. And whoever would take the money and trade it and trade it kind of large and overcome the high fees, the early days of managed futures, I think that was uh, really fun. But in hindsight, it was not sustainable. And then... In the 90s, we, most of the industry had this one giant client that was just the best client ever. And the fees were low, but the track record was amazing. My track record with those guys was just so phenomenal when you compared the two with my managed futures, public funds, the big wirehouses that, that didn't look as good because the fees to the clients were so much higher. But uh, now, how do you do that? Where is this... Um, big investor that's going to step in and give us all, you know, lots and lots of assets to manage and understand and love managed futures and CTAs, systematic trend following. I don't see that. And it's very difficult to see how small, smaller traders are going to have the same success that Chesapeake had from 1988 onwards for 20 to 30 years. So it's, I have no idea how to do that, but as far as just having a good performance and Having a good small fund, I would say, you know, have a fund. Don't have 100 managed accounts like I had mm. and trade equities, trade single stocks with, you know, make that portion of your portfolio, the 15 or 20 percent or whatever that you're going to allocate to the stock sector. You know, definitely get out there and trade individual names with lots of diversification, hunting for those outliers in those markets and uh, try to blend in and not be so CTA-ish. I think, you know, for a long time, I... I don't know if, if you felt this way or Dunn felt this way, but we just sort of felt like we made a mistake by being classifying ourselves as a CTA to some degree and not more, you know, systematic global macro trading equities and being a little bit more mysterious. I would hear about, you know, famous hedge fund guys that were thought of as more of hedge funds. And we were just pretty sure that they were all kind of trend following in their own way. They just didn't talk about it. But I'm not sure exactly how to become a big CTA now for myself or for anyone. No, I, I mean, you make some 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 great points and, uh, and, and I agree with that. It's very hard because what we want to do as managers uh, in order to achieve the best long-term performance is not necessarily what, what the clients 
well, maybe they want it deep down, but they just don't have the uh, ability to uh, to stomach it, so to speak, with the way they are structured. What I did notice, and that's quite interesting, I, I do think we could say in, in general there's been a bit of a drought in terms of, of flows into the CTA space. I think it's shifted, meaning that I think it started out with kind of high net worth individuals, then the institutions came. I think it's shifted back somewhat towards the high net worth individuals. I think the institutions have been taking a bit of a breather. But then I did read an article yesterday about inflow seen in uh, one of our peers and where they were highlighting in the in the article that the flows really came from North America institutional investors. And I think putting two and two together, I think what's going on right now is that very few but very large U.S.-based pension funds, and some of them um, have been on the on the show, uh, like Halsters, uh, a number of years ago, and I do think they've been in, at the forefront, where they really do realize that there is just no argument for not having trend following in their portfolio. There simply is no no uh, scientific argument for not having it. There's never been a white paper written that doesn't confirm the improvements that that we add to a portfolio. And those guys continue to add trend following, I think, to 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 their portfolio. And so I think that's what what I'm picking up is that that some people who really uh, understand and believe the value they are now uh, adding. But these guys are obviously not going to invest with a new manager. They're picking the top five, which is why they they t- continue to grow in size, and and then it doesn't really flow down to to. Uh, even medium-sized uh, managers today. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough business. But I think the best thing you can do is, if you love the industry like we do, just do it and, and hopefully uh, you're going to have luck on your side and, uh, and get that little breakthrough, yeah. I do think at some point in time, um, when stocks return to more of a normal mm. uh, performance, that we will see a resurgence in CTAs. And uh, we should dominate with our risk control and with our the number of markets and i think eventually they will i think uh, maybe long after i'm gone they it'll be the most mainstream investment i think that i kind of obviously don't enjoy some of the elements that have been added to trend following by ctas of all targeting the obsession with drawdowns on open trade profits and i kind of like the more classic but more than likely that all the large CTAs have dealt with these institutions and come back and said, hey, this is what they want. You know, you can make fun of, but we're the ones with the billions under management and we're the ones meeting these people's needs and they really don't like uh, the drawdowns and the volatility in these open trades. So we're trying to run a business here and give these clients what they want and it's not classic trend following. So I still don't understand why, like especially like a year like, this year like where is the classic trend follower in like a mutual fund why aren't they up 20 or 30 percent like some of the uh, s- smaller traders are where it, it does seem like that we've that has been that boat has been missed a bit that more retail people might be just perfectly fine with more of a classic uh, strategy but i'm not sure if enough of that is out there in the in the public and in the mutual funds or an etf that they could access so it does seem to be maybe the high net worth people, they would be perfectly fine with uh, someone who accepts the volatility of some of these open trades. But I don't know if uh, maybe the, I feel like some of the mutual funds, they just, they have the sort maybe more of a similar strategy than, uh, you know, like a Chesapeake classic strategy. 
I know for a fact that at least one, but I have a feeling it's it could be more, one of the very big... So, so the mutual fund space, as I understand it, it's all about being on the right platforms, right? There's maybe a handful of platforms. If you're on those, you can kind of grow your AUM a lot. But certainly from, um, f- from what I know, a few years back, one at least, but maybe more of these platforms started to discourage their broker network from investing in those uh, CTA mutual funds that had high volatility. So that that I know for a fact. And so that could be exactly the reason why, as you say, that the, what people can buy today is not what's going to give them these outlier returns, as we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months. But I want to go off script a little bit more, Jerry, if you don't mind, because some, it just reminded when you said this thing, uh, you said, you know, when I'm when I'm long gone, uh, and and I wanted to to ask you something. So I was listening to a podcast episode this week, or or, or conversation, uh, maybe I should say, with Leda Braga, the the founder and CEO of Systematica, which is of course um, hugely experienced uh, person in our space, and they they are the ones who run the the Blue Trend Fund, which has been uh, very successful over the years, and. She was asked that there are, you know, about what are the things that um, keeps her up at night. What are the things she's thinking about? And, they, and it actually was two topics that we never talk about on the podcast. Actually, one she said cyber attacks. Apparently, Systematica had been attacked only a few weeks ago uh, or had a cyber attack. And then the other thing she um, thought a lot about was succession planning. So, given the fact that you said when I'm long gone, I was curious. Succession planning, is that something that you ever thought about? And and also the other thing, I was just, you know, cyber attacks and all of that, is that something you think about, spend time on? Oh, yeah. We spend a fair amount of time on cybersecurity and we employ outside firms and we have, you know, people in charge in that area. So it's something that uh, we're... We get uh, good grades on, but we're, we have to remain vigilant. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, certainly that's a big effort too, I think, from the NFA. Right. I think my compliance people were telling me once, and we're, we're SEC registered as well, and sometimes I see regulations and compliance ideas floating around our firm, and I'm like, what's up with the SEC? Why can't they just like leave us alone a bit more? And they'll say, no, this is the NFA. So I think the NFA is 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 uh, doing a pretty good intense job as it <clears throat> trying to keep this issue in the minds of CTAs and make sure they understand how important it is. So yeah, I agree with her on that. It it is frightening uh, when you read about these attacks. Mm. And what about succession planning, if you don't mind? I know it's a little bit off the cuff question, but um, is that something you ever thought about? I think you know. Um, for me, my trading has over the past, you know, five years become more personal and uh, with fewer clients and more of my own money that I'm mm-hmm. managing. So, and I think my succession plan is pretty much how do I continue to encourage people who are listening and um, to trade, you know, more of a classic trend following approach. And mm-hmm. so I'll be succeeded by lots of uh, small traders who will give me some credit for introducing them to and extolling the virtues of smaller, of a classic trend-following approach. So I don't think that Chesapeake will live necessarily beyond me, but hopefully the, the methods and the ideas that I've been using since 1983, that they will uh, succeed me beyond 
because I do think it's a shame for everyone to evolve into a hybrid of classic trend following. When classic does really well, and it's not going to get any better than the last year and a half or two years. Mm. If this is not enough evidence, you know, right. and then yeah. there's nothing I can do or anyone can do. But I do think turtle trend following may pass away. And I think that's what I'm more interested in. We cannot mm. let the, one of the greatest experiments and one of the greatest ideas and events of all time from a financial trading point of view, our little niche just totally go away. Like, I wonder how the turtles traded, you know. There's just a lot of disinformation out there and a lot of emphasis on wrong-headed small parts of the, the, the turtle experiment and the core of what it was all about and what it meant. I think I don't want that to get lost. So that's what I'm way more interested in, that continuing. And the great thing, because I completely agree with you and, 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 and I think thanks to all your efforts through the, the years, it will continue. But in a sense, that's also why I think it is so important that we are building this body of work every week. We have these conversations, they're recorded, they will live forever. When you and I are long gone, they will still be there. And, and it's that legacy, hopefully, that people will uh, always be able to refer back to keep them grounded and keep them focused on the long-term picture. But we're not quite gone yet. So let's uh, go back to the questions that we have or this question from, from Sebastian this week. And then we'll dive into some of the topics you brought along, Jerry, which are really, really interesting as well. Sebastian writes, thanks for a great podcast. I really enjoy every episode and learn a lot. In the last episode, I really enjoyed the discussion about starting a trading firm. So we've done that already. Uh, very honest words. I have a question about currency hedging. The most stocks I trade are based in, uh, are denominated in US dollar and I'm based in Europe. I know Moritz and Nils are based in Europe too. Do you hedge US dollar based futures stocks? And if so, how? So let me jump into that one since, um, since it is an issue. I think that's, um, I think essentially, Sebastian, if you were a firm, for example, you could offer your strategy in different currency denominations and you would obviously hedge your currency back to that base currency um, every day, every week, however often. I think you, if you're trading your own PL, I think you have to at some point bring it back to your base currency. You could say that, you know, if you're trading a lot of US stuff, you could say, okay, my, my initial margin that I have to post in, in the currency of choice. And I can, and you can say oh, the currency of of um, of the exchange, and you can either decide and say, okay, it gives me a little bit of currency diversification that I leave that in U.S. dollars, but all the profits that I have, all the realized profits, I bring back and I convert that to Europe. You need to find something that is easy to manage, though. You don't want to do this every day uh, if if you're just trading your own account. So maybe it's something you review on a monthly basis. I wouldn't worry too much about it in the long term. But once you do have some very significant open profits, I think you do need to convert it back if you don't want the currency risk. Anything you want to add to that, uh, Jerry? Yeah, I think I believe that um, I look at it on a kind of a trade-by-trade -trade basis. You know, if I'm trading a market denominated in a euro, then I might, you know, just I have a tendency not to calculate and worry about uh, it not being in dollars, but... Uh, so if I'm going to try to lose three ATRs on a trade, 
maybe on a euro-based trade, I'll, I'll lose 3.1 ATRs or 2.9. So I think I just write it off as it probably is just going to co- probably come out in the wash, not be a winner or a major loser. And then, of course, if you're trading a euro-yen or a euro-Canada, you can't hedge that because then you're back to just trading euro. So I think I just sort of ignore it. But don't most of the European traders and CTAs um, keep their track record and their and their fund in dollars? I know some. Yeah, you have to convert it. Yeah, you have to convert it back for for track record purposes. Yeah. Completely agree. Yeah, and some of them uh, have different share classes: a Euro share class, a Swiss, a US. So that's another way to do it as well. But um, yeah, I guess I don't focus on that too much. No, and and we do. I mean, at our on our uh, at our shop, we we have uh, different currency classes. But then you know, the our cash manager will always hedge the uh, the actual currency exposure so that people don't see that because that's the reason why they bought, say, a euro share class. That's because they don't want to have uh, you know unnecessary exposure to other currencies. So uh, it can be done. But of course, at the end of the day, people should just be aware that if you want to have a you know currency uh, denomination in euro then you're going to pay negative interest rates. So euro share classes at the moment perform generally worse than US dollar share classes just because of the interest rate uh, differential. But that's the way it is. I want to jump into, um, since we're already 45 minutes into our conversation, I want to make sure we get to all of the topics that you brought along and maybe one or two that I thought of at the same time. And it's based on some of the tweets you sent uh, over to me, so I'm sure you can give uh, maybe a little bit more of the context. Uh, so I'm going to throw them at you, and uh, and we'll see how uh, where we go with that. The first one you uh, sent over was, um, I think, from a conversation I had with Rob a while back. Uh, the quote was, keeping things simple often seems so complicated that a complicated approach is chosen as an easy way out. Oh, yeah, I'm always trying to pick up quotes like that and... and uh... Make it, make sure everyone knows that I'm just a simple guy, and you know it really doesn't help my reputation. I should try to become a more complex person, but uh, you know that was a quote off of LinkedIn comment on your interview with Rob from Harold at Transtrend. Oh, so Harold's cool. a really smart guy, and Transtrend is. Yes. I've just been such a huge fan of those guys from day one. I just yeah. for some reason I just thought they were the, just the best, and every and Harold is really a smart guy, and. I love reading. I sometimes don't understand some of his stuff, but uh, this, of course, I did understand, and I pinned it as it's my pinned tweet. Yes, it doesn't get any better, you know, than that from my perspective. So um, I thought that was interesting because here's a group that could definitely get as complex as they wanted to. They have a lot of smart people, and um, but I think they stay pretty true to the core trend following, and I think that's kind of a nice little quote that. Um, you know, one of the things that I do is that uh, I think it's very important to um, be ready. You know, as I said earlier, be ready for things we haven't seen before and crazy things, COVID and that uh, crazy market action. And I think trying to come up with a lot of complex ideas on what should we do next, like in an, almost an AI point of view, to learn from COVID, I think, or just if you see huge volatility and lots of losing trades in a short period of time, reduce your trading size. Okay, so that's my solution, right? I could become a lot more complex with rules and trying to learn what has worked in the back test the best to prevent massive loss of capital. And I'm very hesitant and I'm not in favor of 
overriding the rules and the systems, and yet we have to stay in the game and preserve capital and not be slaves to these rules and systems if it's going to cost us our business and too much of our equity. And so that was the ultimate turtle rule is that um, when you're having periods like this and things are going really crazy, uh, take off half your trades or a quarter of your trades and and see what happens and survive and maybe it won't work. And I don't think it has worked very often for me. And sometimes I have got myself in trouble from just purely trading too large. But it was a big benefit to me last year when COVID happened, just to have that one simple rule in place of maybe a lot of complex rules that says when things get really crazy, trade small. And then when things settle down, go back to trading normal. And I think that that's just the best rule ever. And I think that that quote kind of reminds me of a way that we could uh, become a lot safer without being too complex. Mm, yeah. I want to stay with, uh, uh, since I now know that the quote came from uh, from Harold at Transtrend, I want to stay with Transtrend for a little while longer because they do produce some great papers and research. And um, I think one of them was the subject of a uh, article that you also tweeted out from Hedge Fund Journal. And in that, there's another quote that goes, shorter-term systems might sound more responsive but they may not necessarily pick up new trends. They can be distracted by noise. We think in terms of robustness rather than speed. We want to ignore short-term noise and stay in long if the opportunity is there. Yeah, I like that because once again, it reaffirms my commitment to longer term and staying in there. I think even if we look at the back test and we see, okay, this is uh, the computer wants me to be longer term, I'm uncomfortable with that. So I think it's difficult to actually follow the rules that, uh, or the preference of the back tests because, once again, those drawdowns can be kind of anxiety-producing. But another thing that produces anxiety for me is just continuing to get in and out of a trade. Why get back in? Well, we've got to get back in at the highs because we can't miss an outlier. That's a trend-following rule. But, man, some of these markets, you just get in and out, you're whipsawed all around, and that is just a lot of noise and it's very costly and we tend to get small nicks but they add up over time and we tend to focus on the big drawdown which uh yeah it's painful but sometimes uh, avoiding the short-term noise and whipsaws can really make a difference in our performance you take something like sugar it's been kind of an up move but and it has it probably won't make a great deal of money i mean most of the trades don't but if you were too short term, I mean, it's just going to chew you up. And we talked about cocoa. And so right. for me, you know, it's been 20 losers in a row. But for my system, it's probably been just five over the past, you know, five years because I just don't get out unless I'm really, really compelled. My stops don't get hit unless it's, you know, really a trend reversal in a major way. So I think uh, I like that noise thing. The noise is getting greater and greater. And, uh, We've had to, in order to preserve profitability, become longer term. We get criticized for that. It reminds some people of just buy and hold. But uh, it's more than one thing about hunting outliers. You want to stay profitable and not get chewed up when we don't have the outliers. And the longer term systems do a much better job than the shorter term. I think everyone should try to be as short as term as possible. And 
maybe one of these days we'll get back to the late 90s when the trends were more calm and smooth. But uh, if not, I think um, a longer-term approach is going to continue to do as well or better. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. Again, I'm pretty sure it's from the same article where the quote this time is, there's no certainty that historical correlation patterns will persist. Systems need to be flexible enough to cope with things that have never been seen during backtests. History isn't a safe guide. We see things which have never happened before all the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is one of my another one of my favorite topics. So um, I need to diversify more in my topics, I guess. Uh, I'm not as well diversified <laughs> about the things I talk about. But uh, yeah, so I think that is such an important thing for me that uh, once again, these loose pants, a lot of trends mm-hmm. can happen in the future and in the past. And yet the chart patterns and the fundamentals that are driving them are going to uh, could be much different. And uh, we need to uh, allow these parameters to capture these large trends and hang in there and stay in there with them. And then, you know, once again, that rule of cutting back when you face problems in your portfolio and, you, and you're losing too much money, that's just the greatest rule of all time. You, No matter what you see, no matter what's causing it, we can all trade smaller for a time in order to stay alive. Yeah, no, definitely. It is interesting because certainly when you uh, hear or listen to uh, other people in our industry talk, they do talk about that correlation seems to be more persistent than other things that we use uh, potentially in our in our signal generation or risk management, whatever it might be. But, you know, again, nothing is uh, bulletproof. Now, then I want to move on to something that I had picked up when I... I think I read the original paper that TransTrend had done, something that was very interesting to me, and I do think it made a huge difference uh, to performance last year. And it's when they start to talk about volatility, and so I'm going to do my best to not butcher this uh, these few lines. So they write, some traditional approaches to forecasting volatility and correlation, such as the exponentially weighted moving average, which heavily weight the most recent observations, could have markedly downsized positions after March 2020 and resulted in two small positions. Also in 2021, short-term volatility associated with the phenomenon such as cryptocurrencies and speculative retail investors' frenzy in certain meme stocks could have resulted in systematic strategies reducing or exiting exposure. Transtrend was not entirely immune to these typical portfolio management dynamics, but anticipated the consequences of such periods of extreme turbulence. Initially in March 2020, Transtrend undiversified risk, adding up all positions, uh, all position risk, assuming 100% correlation, did drop as some positions were caught uh, or exited. But by May 2020, it had increased to about 50% above pre coronavirus crisis levels, the ability to not only rebuild exposure, but also augment distinguished trends trend from some systematic strategies targeting constant forecast volatility that might well have undershot their target volatility in 2020. I think this is a very interesting topic because I fully agree and have certainly seen how volatility or changes in volatility significantly changed exposure in some strategies last year and where of course now that we know what happened 
if you were able to maintain high exposure or build it quickly um, after the initial shock in March and April, you would have had a much better outcome for the year 2020. What I didn't quite understand, maybe Harold will clarify on LinkedIn or Twitter, is this word, that their systems anticipated the consequence. I'm not sure what that means, anticipated the consequence, if there is a certain rule you know, in there or whether it was something they decided to do or whether it's kind of built in there. Because it is kind of unusual, frankly, to see a systematic manager where the markets go through an explosion of volatility to see a systematic manager after decreasing positions as we would normally do, increase them so quickly after that. Because volatility hadn't quite, unless you use very short-term volatility measures, you could maybe argue that volatility had decreased again so much by May that you could increase your positions. But usually we don't use that short-term volatility to, to position size. So I'm intrigued by this part of the uh, of the article. I don't know whether you picked up on this at all, uh, Jerry, but, but it's just interesting to me. Yeah, I read that whatever they put out, whatever whenever he says, I read it very carefully. And, you know, it may sound odd coming from me, but... With someone like uh, Transtrend, I really my idea is how can Jerry and Transtrend both be right? Sometimes I read things and I'm like, I could jump to this conclusion and, oh, it doesn't sound like they're doing things uh, the way that I would do it or the correct way, the correct Jerry way, you know. And uh, But then sometimes I'm thinking, just read it more carefully. Maybe, you know, we both can be right. And how is that possible? So I was trying to figure out that way that I could read it in a different way. But um, I think one of the things that happens it with maybe with uh, CTAs in general is you're back to sort of the volatility of the portfolio and the correlations. So when I set up my portfolio, I kind of pay attention to correlations and then I ignore them forever. So I set up my position weightings in all the different markets and I'm going to, but they're fixed. So I think, yeah, heating oil, crude and unleaded, they are kind of correlated, silver, gold, and platinum, kind of correlated, uh, but they could have their own move. There could be a big outlier. So this is the weighting that I'm going to give them in portfolio. And I'm just going to say to myself, okay, over time, the correlations are going to go from zero to 99%, but I'm okay with that. I'm just going to live through it. If it starts to impact my portfolio in a big negative way, I'm going to just cut back the whole portfolio. But I'm going to be a slave to taking all the trades for the rest of my life with the same system, same entry, same exit, all the markets, the same longs and shorts, the same, and the same unit size, the same weighting of the portfolio. So I'm not going to pay attention to correlation. So maybe though other CTAs say, it's not just the ATR. Oh, I was very defensive about this ATR thing. And I'm like, no, no, no. When the volatility, when I put a trade on, in some of those trades we were reversing, the volatility getting short the commodities and the currencies back in last year. So what? I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to anticipate more volatility. Or when I, we reversed the positions and we started going long after COVID was deemed to be over and the expansion was going to occur, I'm not going to adjust my ATR. So I was really defensive about that. I don't like that idea at all. If the volatility is high, then I'm going to have a small position, you know, and I'm going to, uh, but maybe they were intertwining into all of that, this correlation thing as well, which I don't pay attention to and saying, 
We know we not only look at the ATR, we look at the correlations, and thus we're going to trade small. But of course, maybe they also say that is a hindrance sometimes. Jerry's right. We we don't want to trade too small, and maybe they do have some rules that say, hey, now we think history or the back test has shown us that we're going to go through a period where the, the correlations are going to be less than they were, and thus we can kind of trade small. So, I mean, we can trade larger. So I think larger, maybe yeah. some traders put both of those concepts into the, the quantity calculation for the next trade, which I don't do. But yeah, you're getting him on and asking him some questions is always a good idea. Yeah, well, he's always welcome. Uh, has been on the show a number of times. So uh, definitely, I think I might skip the Quantica things because I want to uh, want us to have enough time to do that. Maybe we do it next time you're on. They had also released a good paper. Maybe just finishing off, uh, Jerry, the, the concept of system diversification. This is something that Richard has talked about, I've talked about it, and now last week, Moritz talked much more about it because he's now at around 30%, you could say, well, it is trend following in, in the way he looks at it, but it's actually spread trading. So trend following spread trading, if, if that makes sense. So it's definitely something that's moving into his portfolio as well. Derek tweeted at some point, it also speaks to the cost of not adding other strategies and why we must take the volatility in our equity curve since you're not optimizing for risk-adjusted returns, nor maximum diversification, but maximum su survivability. If trading is an infinite game, survival is more important than returns. So that's not directly linked to this, but a little bit about diversification. So system diversification, I just wanted to ask you, even though you don't do it, are you against it? Is it something you would ever consider? How do you think about that? You know, I love listening to the podcast where you and Moritz or you and Richard will, like, I don't know, Jerry's not going to agree with this. I don't know, Jerry does agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really funny. And I have to sort of sit back and say, okay, I got to get a good answer to these guys. I got to, you know, act like I know what I'm doing here. So, you know, of course I am in favor of system diversification. Now, my system diversification that I've talked about is not good enough for most people, which is trend following with different parameters. So that's not good enough. It's still trend following. And my obsession with trading as many markets as possible, it's including single stocks, that's not that great either because I think Derek insinuates or says, well, you're still going to have some correlation because you're trend following everything. And I don't disagree with that. I do think, believe it or not, um, trend following currencies and trend following the meets uh, that's still trend following. There's probably some correlation there in those trends and the commodities and the currencies that are all moving around together sometimes with similar fundamentals. So uh, I agree. So there should be a, it would be great to have another uh, system, not different parameters of the same trend following strategy and not even moving averages versus breakouts. You know, I'd probably, it would be better to have something else. You know, I, Richard brought up Lots likes to talk about convergent and divergent. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty sure I know what that means. But I asked him one day and I got him on record, like, wait a second, you're saying like convergent is not great because it doesn't have a trailing stop. Yes. I'm like, yes, I agree. See, that's where, that's what, what I won't do. So whatever system you have, call it what you want to call it, divergent, convergent. Mm. I'm not going to trade without a trailing stop. I refuse. So no, it's not safe. You know, you're not going to add 
something to my portfolio that's not safe. You know, there's a limit. We raise our children. Yes, these are all good ideas, but don't do that one thing over there. You may not survive. And so that's what I'm saying. If my performance, especially my back-tested performance, and Richard mentions this as well, it's very easy to come up with lots of diversification of strategies in the back test. But going forward, are you comfortable with the stock market that can have a 50 80% drawdown? And we've seen it. It can have a drawdown at the same time as the trend-following drawdown. So marrying the two, I'll have a lot of my assets in long-only equities. I'll have a lot in systematic diversified trend-following. Yeah, I mean, that's really great in history. But no, it's not safe. I'm not going to do that because you can't have these monster drawdowns. So bring me a systematic approach that's counter, that's going to add value to and, and add diversification to the tr traditional trend following that doesn't make me risk too much money. And if you don't have a trailing stop, then it's not for me. It's not safe. I'm not going to do it. Stop losses, keeping those losses small, whatever your strategy is there, that's another great idea. And so we're in this dilemma. What do we do? And it doesn't, we can't pay attention and we can't take too much comfort from a historical back test knowing that stocks can crash and, and have a, a bad decade. Yeah, no, I like that. And I think that's definitely true that uh, I think all of us uh, are much more comfortable with anything that uh, where, where the loss and the downside is defined. Uh, for me, when I hear system diversification, I think about the way uh, that it's structured inside uh, my own trend-following model where there is different kinds of trend-following models, not just one type of trend-following, maybe even different time frames, of course, but really just also different ways of, of doing trend-following. For me, that, that uh, you know, makes sense. But hey, there we are. Let me quickly wrap up. Uh, by the way, I will say to, to Richard, though, next time he's on, I do think you can do convergent strategies with a stop. I mean, if you want, it may not work very well, but I think you can because you're just betting on the mean reversion. And if it doesn't happen or if it expands, you you have your stop. But if you want to just be a long only, of course, then that's obviously wouldn't have a stop per se. Anyways, quick uh, update uh, performance-wise. It's not a bad start to September, at least as of Thursday. Beats up 50, up 70 basis points, up 8.5% almost this year. Sockgen CT index up 20 basis points, up 6.7% this year. Trend index up 31 basis points, up almost 9% this year. The short-term traders index, though, it's down 22 basis points for the month, and it's now negative slightly, though, for the year. My trend barometer is still weak. 30 is the reading, which people, of course, can follow on the website. But it is weak, and we have seen some weakness, uh, at least among some trend followers over the summer. So um, more reflecting that. MSCI World is down for a change this month, down 60 basis points, but still up 16% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index is down 13 basis points so far. As always, uh, we know that your time is not a renewable uh, resource, so we certainly appreciate you taking one hour, two hours a week to uh, keep up with the podcast, the clubhouse and everything. So, um, so we appreciate that as we... Um, Together, walk this journey of figuring out how to best trade and invest in, in an uncertain time and sometimes even crazy world. So we are very grateful for that. Feel free to leave a rating and review. That would be wonderful. Next week, it's Mark who returns. Mark and I decided a month ago we're going to talk about something completely different to what we normally talk about. I think it'll be super interesting. I have to read up on it myself. 
but it's a study that he uh, was part of. So I think you will jo- enjoy that. Um, it'll be an unusual topic, so to speak, but of course still within our wheelhouse. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Jerry, before you go off and watch the uh, teenage girls play the U.S. Open final? Yeah, Richard uh, tweeted something about the women's finals and uh, ca- calling the these girls outliers. And uh, <laughs> I think if I think regardless um, what, of what who wins, they're I think they're both going to make like from this one tournament uh, more than they've ever made in their entire life playing tennis. So, uh, you know, it's uh, we see it all the time, things that have never happened before and coming from unlikely places and sources. So um, I'm really happy to live in a, a world of outliers and uh, in, a, in, in a world with a non-normal distribution. And uh, it's, uh, it's fun. This is uh, the f- most fun business you could possibly be in. It just keeps getting better and better. I'm so intellectually challenged every day to uh, make money and um, survive, you know, and it's such a such a fun business to have to be able to look at all the different markets all around the world. Absolutely. I completely agree. Outliers, um, they pop up uh, all the time. And uh, and of course, when it's in the financial world, it's our job and wish to be there to capture them. Jerry, thanks so much for your time. Another great conversation. Thanks to everyone who listened in. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.